Well, hello there. It is great to see you again, and welcome back to Closing Arguments. I am your moderator, Ryan Ruff. It's great to be back with everybody today. And as always, I'm joined by my right-hand man and the star of our show, Mr. John, or Jack Razumich, as many know him by, over from Razumich and Associates. And we're going to be diving into another criminal law-related discussion, as we typically do on the show today. One of our favorite topics, we're diving deeper into the anatomy of a trial. Obviously, so many different crime-related shows out there that people, you know, they have an idea as to what the anatomy of a trial may look like, you know, the proceedings ahead of time, you know, during, the fallout after. Well, today, we're going to be diving into all of that and more. But first, let's go ahead and welcome the man of the hour out here. Jack, it's good to see you today. How are you doing? Hey, Ryan. Uh Great to see you again. Glad to definitely get in with this topic. Um, this is something that's very near and dear to my heart, the anatomy of a trial. Uh, our firm has a reputation as being something of trial hawks. Uh, as of the time of this recording, we've already done four jury trials so far this year. We did two jury trials last month. We were almost set to do a third one uh, until common sense prevailed and the prosecutor's office went ahead and um, filed the dismissal on that one, which is what needed to happen with that case. But uh, we're definitely not afraid of going to trial at this firm. So um, going over what's involved and how a trial actually works and kind of peeling some of that mystery back, it's something that I've wanted to talk about for a while now. Absolutely. And, you know, it's eye-opening for those out there that may have an idea of what the trial might look like, but really uh, we're going to be obviously getting into the weeds of it today. So, Jack, let's start with kind of the pre-trial issues, uh, the jury selection process. Why don't you kick things off for us and just uh, give us that overview on what really happens before a trial ever kicks off? Sure. Usually about uh, within a week, sometimes even the morning of uh, the trial, the court will have what's referred to as a preliminary matters hearing. And what the preliminary matters hearing is designed for, that is really to kind of set the stage for what's going to happen at the trial moving forward. The most important things that happen at the preliminary matters hearing, there are two major things that happen. The first is there is a discussion over the preliminary jury instructions. In the state of Indiana, juries are instructed as to the law at two stages. They are instructed at the beginning of the case, and they are instructed at the end of the case. The preliminary hearings, uh, preliminary matters hearing is designed to kind of make sure that everyone is on the same page with regards to the preliminary jury instructions. Out of all the trials that I've done, I can safely state that it is very unusual that there's a lot of conflict over the preliminary jury instructions. Uh, the Indiana Supreme Court, a uh, number of years back, I want to say, I don't know, 40 some years back, created a rules committee that effectively said these are the instructions that we should see when we're describing to a jury how the law is actually interpreted, how the law works. Uh, so the preliminary instructions are, are very formulaic. It, it's very much, you know, I'm the judge, this is the prosecutor, this is the process of the trial, here's the charge that you're here for, here's the presumption of innocence instruction. Those don't change that much. They, those are those are almost uniform in all cases. Every great once in a while, there will be a curveball. Uh, but that part of the preliminary matters hearing is usually pretty straightforward. The other thing that happens at the preliminary matters hearing is uh, what are referred to as motions in limine are discussed. And what a motion in limine is, it is a pretrial motion uh, made by one side or the other. Either the prosecution will make it or the defense will make it. And it's designed to effectively control what the attorneys are allowed to talk about. So, for example, if a defendant has previous criminal convictions that are not admissible um, under some sort of other rule of evidence, the defense will file a motion in limine for the purposes of making sure the state knows and all the state's witnesses know, hey, you can't talk about these prior criminal convictions. Um, likewise, one of the standard motions in limine that we see the prosecution file is they'll file a motion in limine that says, hey, defense attorney, you are not allowed to tell the jury what the potential penalties for this case are. The idea being that, um, you know, you want the jury to just determine guilt or innocence or, or, or guilt or not guilt, not determine like, wow, this is, this is a really heavy charge for this. Effectively, it's a way of trying to get around jury nullification. Um, most of the time, those motions in limine, again, are very formulaic. You, you, the state will have it, standard ones will have ours. 
in certain types of uh, assault-related offenses, they can be a little bit more complicated because there will be issues that have to deal with um, does a particular witness impermissibly vouch for the credibility of another witness? And that's what that preliminary matters hearing is for, is to try to really help lay the ground rules out on that to make sure that uh, the trial proceeds in an orderly fashion with as minimal interruptions to the jury as possible. So that's that's generally the very first thing. The final preliminary matter that almost always happens before uh, the actual trial itself starts is, uh, and this is almost always the defense, although I've seen the state do this once or twice on his own as well, one of the attorneys will make a motion for a separation of witnesses. And what that motion is, um, that is basically a motion that says, if, a wit if witness A is testifying, witness B is not allowed to be in the courtroom watching their testimony. The idea is that it prevents collusion. It prevents uh, the witnesses from basically building off of testimony that they have already seen to make a certain version or a certain narrative more plausible is the wrong way of phrasing it, but, but kind of put together, put together on the concept that, hey, I forgot about that. Let me testify about that. Each witness is supposed sure. to testify from their own memory, not what they've heard someone else say. And that separation of witnesses also covers an inability to speak about the case uh, outside of the process. So if witness A testifies and leaves the stand, um, witness B comes in to testify, but witness C is still out there in the hallway, witness A and C can't talk to the case, talk to each other about the case. They can't talk about their testimony. They can't talk about what questions they were asked. Uh, and that continues through the end of the trial. The prosecution is allowed to designate one witness as what's referred to as an assisting witness. That witness is exempt from the rules of witness separation. It's almost always the lead detective or the lead officer that investigated the case. Uh, they do get to sit there. I Honestly, I don't think they actually assist that much. I think they just sit there as kind of a show of intimidation uh, for the jury. Um, but that's just my opinion on it. <laughs> well, no, this is really interesting, Jack, because I think a lot of these preliminary, uh, you know, measures are are really new concepts. I think to the layman and and are are uh, you know a nice chunk of our audience. But I think where everybody thinks about the the before or the pre planning and the pre trial issues, I think everybody's mind jumps to the jury selection. So talk me through jury selection when this process begins. Obviously, how it begins and plays out, and and you know. Uh, the idea of maybe having different members of a jury, not all the same type of person on a jury. Just talk to us about how the jury selection works all together. Sure. Juries in Indiana, uh, generally speaking, are chosen the morning of the trial. Um, I have seen some courtrooms are increasingly doing jury selection the afternoon before the trial. So like if you have a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday jury, uh, I am seeing increasingly courtrooms are doing the jury selection Monday afternoon with the idea being that you jump into the presentation of evidence at 8.30 the following morning. I actually prefer that. Um, I know some other attorneys don't, but I do find that that makes it a little bit easier with regards to making sure that you're not rushed on the jury selection process, um, that there's an ability to kind of, again, make sure you have your witnesses ready to go. Uh, Marion County uh, here in Indianapolis, where our offices primarily are, um, we do the jury selection that morning and we immediately go into the presentation of evidence afterwards. And that can sometimes be an issue with scheduling to make sure you know, okay, I need to have this witness available at this time because jury selection, while technically jury selection is usually limited by the court uh, to anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour per side, magically jury selection almost always seems to take up about half a calendar day anyway. Um, the attorneys are given jury questionnaires, which are, are basically very short biographical breakdowns. They don't say anything of significance. Um, a, a jury questionnaire for the most part, it has, uh, the prospective juror's name. It has, you know, their address, their age, who else lives in their household, uh, in Indiana, most of the counties will ask if you've ever served on a civil or a criminal jury before. Um, they'll ask if they have anyone in their family who's engaged in, involved in law enforcement. Uh, they'll ask if they've ever been convicted of a criminal offense. 
Um, and then there's kind of a catch-all about, is there any reason why you couldn't be a fair and impartial jury in this matter? Like, basically, nothing of significance. Um, most counties will make those jury questionnaires available to the attorneys about a week in advance. Uh, Marion County does not. Again, <laughs> Indianapolis, Marion County, we, we tend to do things our own way over here. But a lot of counties will make those questionnaires available about a week in advance. Um, what the attorneys will do with them is the attorneys will do, for lack of a better way of putting it, social media research. You know, if we have a witness that, or if we have a prospective juror that we know is going to be on the jury and we go on their Facebook and, you know, they have something out of left field that says, you know, I think all criminals, uh, anyone accused of a crime is guilty and, and we should just shoot them all and let God straighten it out. That's clearly a red flag that we put a check mark on. This person's probably I not going to be good for this so. jury. Um, <laughs> generally speaking, though, there's not anything terribly exciting about what's in there or the work that we do with that. And mm -hmm. um, once, once those questionnaires are, are delivered, um, the jury's brought in. Depending on the type of jury it is, if it's a misdemeanor or a level six felony, or technically a civil jury as well, this, this applies to civil juries too. Um, if it's a misdemeanor, a level six felony, or a civil jury, the jury is going to be made up of six members. If it is a major felony offense, the jury is going to be made up of 12 members. And what typically will happen is the judge will bring the jurors in. He'll ask some preliminary matters of them. Uh, for example, if you have served on the jury, if you have, excuse me, if you've served on a jury in the past calendar year, um, you can request to be excused from jury duty. If you are over the age of, I believe it's over the age of 72, you can ask to be excused from the jury. And if you are an active member of law enforcement, you can ask to be excused from the jury if it's a criminal case. Uh, so the judge will ask kind of those preliminary questions. And then he will seat, um, usually jury boxes in Indiana typically will hold 14 people. Whether it's a misdemeanor case or whether it's a felony case, the judge will usually sit 14 prospective jurors in that jury box and then allow the parties to question them. That's a process that's referred to as voir dire. Um, loosely translated, that phrase, it's a French stating, it means uh, to tell the truth. It's effectively a, a get to know you type of situation. The prosecution goes first and the prosecution can ask any questions about anything under the sun that they want of the prospective jurors with the exception of they cannot ask specific facts about the case that's in front of them. You'll see a lot of hypotheticals come out of the attorneys with regards to, um, you know, here's your hypothetical. How do you feel about that? A, a great example is, um, one of the juries that we did uh, recently, one of, the, one of the more recent juries that we did, it was a domestic battery situation. And one of the things, uh, one of our defenses with that was that our client was the actual victim of the domestic battery, not, uh, not his accuser. Um, so, you know, without going in front of the jury and telling them, hey, um, you know, do you think, you know, here's, here are the facts, you know, we think that our client is the victim uh, how do you feel about that? The way that we were able to couch that is we would ask them, you know, do you believe that men can be victims of domestic violence? You know, because that that still gets their feelings out about it. Uh, and those things are incredibly important. I, I, sure. I have had juries tell me, uh, or prospective jurors tell me that whatever theory we were trying to peddle was completely useless. You know, they were not buying it in any way, shape or form. Um, but the prosecution gets to go first. Uh, the prosecutor will ask the prospective jurors questions. Generally speaking, um, in Indiana, jurors are typically assigned a number. And uh, the way that it will go is, you know, juror number five, how do you feel about this? Juror number seven, you know, juror number five thinks this. How do you feel about that? Uh, once the prosecution has asked their questions, it's turned over to the defense attorney. And the defense attorney has effectively the exact same opportunity to ask questions. Um, same restrictions, you know, we can't talk about the specific facts of this case, we can get really close and, and trust me, both sides do everything they can to get right up to that line before the judge slaps them down on it. Um, but the idea is you, you try to get a concept as to how the jury feels about different legal concepts, 
there are a lot of questions that get asked to them about how they feel about returning a verdict of guilty if there's no physical evidence, if it's just testimonial evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And that, that goes a long way towards really helping to, to figure out who you may or may not want on that jury. Um, I know one of the last questions that I always ask, um, and I've been doing this for a number of years, is is I will go down the line and I will ask each juror, if you're selected for this jury, can you look my client in the eye and tell him or her that you're going to give him or her a fair trial? And you'd be surprised the number of people who actually will say no. Um, and those are, those are crucially important things that you have to do. That's why the jury selection yeah. process is is probably one of the most important aspects of the trial as a whole. Sure, um, sure. There's there's a saying that jury that that trials are won or lost in jury selection. There's a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have no no one has any significant control over how the who gets. Well, let me let me rephrase that. The attorneys have a very limited amount of control over who is and who is not seated on the jury. Uh, we mm-hmm. don't control who shows up for jury duty. That's a more accurate way of putting. Sure, um, sure. And I've had juries that I thought were, you know, absolutely great juries that went back there and, and uh, you know, bet my client over. And I've had other ones that I thought we were dead from the word go that came back with a 15 minute not guilty. So there there is wow. a lot of kind of just feeling that process out. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, Jack, for a, a quick a quick point of clarification question though. And I think this would be one that is, is probably on the most minds of anybody that's thinking about a jury selection process. Can you have an all male jury, an all white or all black jury? Like is, do they, is there a specific effort to make sure there's diversification across the jury or are they, you know, is, is a court allowed to appoint the same type of individuals for let's say all 14 seats? Like most things in the law, the answer is a little bit yes and a little bit no. Um, Juries in Indiana are selected. uh, They used to go off of voter registration. Uh, They were not getting enough prospective jurors doing that way. So in Indiana, uh, we are currently selecting our jurors based off of um, driver's licenses. So if you have a driver's license, congratulations, you're now in the pool to be randomly selected for, for jury duty. What happens with that is... You know, it's a random sampling based off of whatever your county demographics are. So you cannot intentionally strike women, minorities. Um, you, you can't rig the jury to be all white, all female, all black. Um, if it happens that way because of the demographic makeup of the county, that is its own, that, that's kind of its own issue sometimes. So, um, Juries are selected from the county where the crime took place or is alleged, the alleged crime took place. Uh, so if you have a county that is overwhelmingly uh, white or overwhelmingly male, if that's who shows up, that's kind of what you're stuck with. Now, there is a case um, out of uh, – there is a Supreme Court case – um, I know it's the, I, I know it's we refer to it as the Batson case. I want I don't know if it's Batson versus United States or or Batson versus some other state. Uh, that is a Supreme Court case that specifically says you cannot systemically use your challenges and strikes to remove minorities from juries, and that was expanded to cover other things. So if you have a jury and um, you know, the, the, the panel of jurors shows up and you've got 30 white people and one black person shows up for the jury pool. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean the system has systemically excluded, uh, black people. It just might be, those are the people whose licenses got pulled that day for jury duty. If that black person makes it into the jury box, that also doesn't guarantee that they're going to be on the jury, um, because they're still subject to the normal removal issue. So if, if you have a juror, and if it's the only minority juror, but that juror basically says, I believe everything the prosecution says, no questions asked, you wouldn't get arrested if you did something wrong, you can still remove that juror because that juror is evidencing that they are, they are a biased juror. And if one of the attorneys thinks that minorities are being impermissibly removed from the jury, they can make what's referred to as a Batson challenge. 
And that Batson challenge requires the attorney who exercised the strike to remove that juror um, to provide some sort of uh, race-neutral reason or gender-neutral reason for why that juror was removed. Um, those challenges are, are almost always brought by the defense, although I will say it was, it, it was, it was funny. I did have a – I had a DUI jury – gosh, about 10 years ago or something at this point in time. And um, there was there was a black female on the jury that we used one of our strikes to remove. And that, that just by coincidence, even here in Indianapolis, sometimes this happens, that just happened to be the only um, minority that made it into the jury box. And and the prosecution made a Batson challenge against me. You know, the, the prosecution argued that I was impermissibly huh. removing minorities for racial reasons. So I had to go up to the judge and I had to explain to the judge, like, well, your honor, when I was asking her, I, I can't even remember what the heck the line of questioning was, mm -hmm. uh, but I remember talking to her and like, she just crossed her eyes like, well, you know, you look like you're not missing too many meals back at home. So I did, <laughs> told the judge, like, the go. judge, the jury called me fat, hurt my feelings. I don't want her on the jury. She's mean to me. So that was enough to kind of take care of that. But Gotcha. Um, yeah, bats and challenges are usually made by the defense. Yeah. Sometimes they get made by the prosecution. It's it's just if you think that minorities have been impermissibly removed from the jury, um, either side can make that challenge. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. Thanks for the clarification there. All right, so let's let's jump ahead now. Jury has been selected. Where do we go from here? And how does the and let's move into the trial itself. How does it how does it really work? Sure. Once the jury is selected, um, the judge provides the preliminary instructions that were agreed to at the at the pretrial matters hearing. Um, the judge has to read each instruction to the jury one at a time. Um, my experience has been there's typically about, depending on how many charges there are, because each individual charge has to be read to the jury as well, there's 15 to 20 preliminary instructions. The jury is made aware that these are what the rules are. These are the rules of evidence. These are how you're supposed to look at things. Uh, and at that point in time, jeopardy attaches. The concept in the law that people have heard about double jeopardy, where you can't be tried for the same crime twice, this is when that jeopardy attaches. As soon as the jury has been sworn, as soon as the jury is starting to be instructed, that is when jeopardy attaches. If something goes wrong and the state has to dismiss the case or the state can't proceed with the trial anymore, you are now exempt with a, with a few minor exceptions from being tried for this case a second time. That is where your jeopardy attaches with that. After the, um, after the judge has provided all the instructions, he sits down and it gets turned over to the attorneys. The way that a trial proceeds is the prosecution always goes first. The prosecution has the burden of proof. They get to go first. Regrettably, they get to go last, too. We'll get to that here in a few minutes. Um, but the first thing that happens is the parties are allowed to make what are referred to as opening statements. Opening statements are not evidence. Opening statements are basically a narrative snapshot about what the attorneys think the case is going to show them. The prosecution uses their opening statement to effectively say, here is... You know, on, on January 1st, 2020, it was a dark and stormy night, and this defendant committed this horrifically terrible crime. Here's all the stuff that we're going to show you to prove to you that he's guilty, and we're going to ask you to return a verdict at the end of the day. Um, the defense is not required to provide an opening statement. And in fact, the defense actually can defer their opening statement until they start their case in chief. Typically, that does not happen. Typically, because you never want to let an argument go unanswered when you're dealing with a jury, the defense will provide their opening statement at that time. I know that we always do. And the opening statement is effectively our counter narrative to what the prosecution says is going to happen. So effectively, you're setting up those dueling narratives right at the beginning so the jury knows what they need to listen for and how the attorneys are framing the case. Um, in the case of a battery situation, we may frame it as, um, you know, no one is denying that, you know, Jane Doe was hurt. What we are saying is that Jane Doe was hurt and then took that hurt and instead of doing the responsible thing of 
calling her therapist or her best friend, took a baseball bat and attacked John Doe, you know, and that's inappropriate. So it's, I clearly I'm coming up with this off the top of my head. I didn't have a fact pattern prepared for it. Sure, sure. All good. All good. But no, this is helpful. Keep going. So that's, that's your opening statement situation. Once the Mm -hmm. opening statements are done, then you move into what we consider to be a trial proper with witnesses, exhibits, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. The state is allowed to call their first witness. Uh, they can call whichever witness they, they think is going to help their narrative concept. The order that witnesses are called in, um, it, it's an art. It's choreography. There's no right or wrong way for what order to call witnesses. Clearly, as an attorney, you want to call witnesses in an order that is going to make narrative sense. You don't want to jump all over creation because you're at risk of losing the jury at that point in time just because they're going to get confused. Um, but the state calls up whoever their witness is, and they're allowed to ask them questions. That's referred to as direct examination. Direct examination is the function where the attorney is soliciting answers to their questions uh, on, on, of their own witnesses on the witness stand. Once the state is done with its direct examination of a witness, the witness is what's referred to as passed to the defense. We are allowed at that point in time to ask our own questions. This is referred to as cross-examination. Now, cross-examination and direct examination have very different functions. Direct examination typically involves very open-ended questions. You know, tell us what happened next. You know, were you afraid? You know, what did you do when this happened? You know, kind of it gives the ability for the witness to provide more of a narrative statement as to what their actions were and why they took their actions. Cross-examination is a little bit more of a controlled situation. With cross-examination, what the attorney is doing is the attorney is telling their client's story through the witness that's on the stand. And it's a very controlled situation. It's a lot of yes or no questions. So um, we did a case recently. Um, one of the cases that the, one of the cases that we did recently, one of the juries, it was a residential entry. One of the charges was residential entry. Residential entry in the state of Indiana is is basically one step below burglary. You've you've gotten into someone's house impermissibly, and you know the witness on on the witness stand, um, you know he's testifying in his direct examination about how. You know, my client barged into his house and my client, you know, broke down the door and my client was belligerent, et cetera, et cetera. So it comes over to us and we're doing our cross-examinations. You know, Mr. You know, Mr. Smith, you know, your testimony was that, you know, my client broke down your door. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. You saw the camera, the video footage from your ring camera. Is that correct? Yes. And that ring footage came from you. Yes. And you can see our client opened the door. Yes. It's like, okay, so he didn't kick the door. No, he didn't kick the door. Okay. He didn't drop an elbow into the door. No, he didn't force the door. He just turned the knob and pushed your door open. Is that correct? No, I guess it's exactly what he did. Okay. So would you agree that that's different from breaking a door down? Uh, It's different from breaking a door down. So, you know, that's, that's how you get that information out and you start Mm -hmm. establishing more of the concept of like, okay, this is what they said over here, but here's what really happened. And we're controlling it with those yes or no questions to kind of make sure that we're presenting the evidence and presenting the story in a way that, that represents what our clients need to have in front of the jury. And mm-hmm. that's what the cross-examination portion of it is. After, sure. the, uh, after cross-examination, um, the state is allowed to ask what are referred to as redirect questions. Those are questions on the questions that I have asked. Um, the idea is that they're attempting to rehabilitate the witness, maybe potentially explain something that I kept them to that yes or no question answer, question and answer on. Uh, we have one final shot at recross based off of those questions. And then uh, one of the rules that we have in Indiana right now is the jury is actually allowed to ask questions of witnesses as well. And once the attorneys are done with their direct and cross examinations, if a juror has a question, They put it in writing, they give it to the bailiff, the bailiff calls the attorneys up, and we review the question. If the question is legally permitted um, because of the rules of evidence something along those lines, the judge will read the question from the jury to the witness. Uh, The witness has to answer it if they can, and then same situation, you've got 
I guess technically at that point in time, you've almost got two cross-examination situations, both the state and the defense. Um, but that's that's kind of how that's kind of how the initial portion of how mm-hmm. testimony works. Sure, sure. So then you had mentioned earlier in that trial proper, in in addition to the you know direct and then cross-examination of the witnesses, you know, evidence, right? The exhibits can come into play. Talk to me about where evidence is admissible in trial and how that plays a role during these examinations. Sure. There's two types of evidence in the state of Indiana. There's what's referred to as testimonial evidence and physical evidence. Testimonial evidence is is just that, the testimony from the witness stand. That is legally considered to be evidence. If you get up on that witness stand, you've raised your hand, sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and you are answering questions, you are providing evidence to the jury. Now, just like any evidence, the jury is capable of determining whether or not this is uh, reliable evidence or credible evidence that they can rely on to make their determination. The other type of evidence, which is more more along the lines of what people think of when they think of evidence, are what are referred to as physical evidence. And physical evidence are things like um, photographs, uh, laboratory reports, I've had weapons that were physical evidence if it was a homicide case. You know, those are the types of things that people consider to be evidence. The way that evidence is admitted in the state of Indiana, um, we have, and we have since the, since the late 70s, I believe, we have a set of rules that are referred to as the Indiana Rules of Evidence. And the rules of evidence dictate how these things are allowed to be permitted. The first threshold issue is, is the evidence relevant? If evidence is relevant, it's considered to be admissible. And relevant under the Indiana rules of evidence is that it makes a fact of consequence more or less likely to be true. So that's the definition of whether or not something's relevant. If it's relevant, the idea is that it's going to come in. The way that evidence comes in is through what's referred to as a sponsoring witness. And the sponsoring witness has to have some sort of connection to the physical exhibit that is being presented before the jury. So if it's a photograph, what will happen is uh, all, all all, all proposed exhibits uh, are marked for identification purposes prior to, uh, to the trial starting. That's, that's not part of the preliminary matters hearing. That's something the attorneys will do on their own behind the scenes. Uh, but what will happen is, you know, a, an attorney will say, I t- tell a witness, you know, I'm going to show you what's been marked for identification purposes as States Exhibit 1 or Defense Exhibit A. Um, it's, it's, not a, it, it's not actually a, a firm rule anywhere, but I have not seen, I've not been involved in a trial where the state did not get numbers and the defense did not get letters. It, it just shook out that way at some point in time. But mm-hmm. they'll say, I'll, I'll show you some marked for identification purposes as States Exhibit 1 or Defense Exhibit A. You know, you know, can you identify this? Like, yes. It's like, what is this? Like, this is a photograph of, you know, the defendant's house that we came to uh, when we received our police run. It's like, okay, who took this photograph? I took this photograph. Is this a true and accurate representation of the photograph that you took on that day? Is this, is this showing what it says that it's showing? Um, and, you know, if the answer is yes, you know, the, the party can move that the exhibit be admitted. That's not a guarantee. Either attorney, uh, let me, not either attorney, the opposing attorney has the ability to uh, object to the admissibility of the evidence. And the objection has to, again, be rooted in the rules of procedure. Um, we have objected, for example, on uh, photographs on the concept that there was a break in the chain of custody. Or there was uh, the person who took the photograph wasn't there to say, I took this photograph. It's like, well, it seems to be a photograph of my house. I didn't take it, but it looks like my house. It's like, okay. You know, she said it looks like her house. Not that this is the front of my house. That's an authenticity situation. Um, so that's, that's primarily where your objections will come from. Uh, sure. But that's, that's how physical evidence gets in. A sponsoring witness says, this is what this is. This is how I know this is what this is. And this is why it is relevant to my testimony. And mm-hmm. uh, it's submitted to the court for consideration. If there are no objections or if it is admitted over objection, it is now part of the official record. And the jury is allowed to examine it, rely on it, consider it. It is part of the things that they are looking at when they're weighing whether or not the state has met its burden of proof at that point. Got it. And Jack, as we continue to progress through the trial, 
uh, and we we come in towards the end. You know, we've gone through our different witnesses. We've examined the, the evidence at play. We come in towards the conclusion of the trial. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I heard this the other day. At the end of a trial is is kind of like a like a college basketball game. <laughs> it's slow. It's methodical. There's timeouts, as in there is a lot of elements at play within the conclusion of a trial. Start to take us through the conclusion that is more than just a conclusion. It really is the final summation of so many things that have happened over the course of a day, a week, a month. I mean, who knows how long that trial was. But why don't you open up the conclusion of a trial for us and all the variables at play here? Sure. So we've gone through we've gone through the state's case in chief. You know, they they put their case on. Once the state is done, they they do what's referred to as resting. That means that they have basically said, we do not have any further evidence to produce at that time. At that point, the defense has the ability, if they so choose, to present a separate case. Um, There is a misnomer, and and it it drives me nuts when this happens in in the instruction phase or when the court is, is, or during the jury selection process generally. There is the concept that usually the judge and usually the state will say is like, do you understand that, you know, the defense doesn't have to do anything, you know, the defense could sit there and take a nap and it's still my burden of proof on this. While technically that is true, we are constantly putting our our client's case in front of the jury. Everything that we are doing when we're doing our cross-examination is designed to present our client's version of events. Where you will usually see a defendant put their own case on or a separate case on, for lack of a better way of putting it, is if there are affirmative defenses that are there, things like self-defense, insanity, stuff that we've talked about in other episodes. Uh, And that's assuming that we can't get that evidence in through the state's witnesses through cross-examination. If the defense presents a separate case, the prosecution has the ability to put on what's referred to as a rebuttal case. Uh, that does not happen very often. A rebuttal case is basically the state reopens its case for the limited purposes of directly challenging something that the defense did on its case in chief. That is fairly uncommon. What normally happens is once the state rests, if the defense does not choose to put on a separate defense, the defense will also rest. Or even if the defense does put on its own separate case, they eventually rest. At that point in time, um, the jury will be temporarily dismissed and removed from the courtroom. That is where the final instructions arguments happen. Final instructions are a lot more complicated and a lot more complex than the preliminary instructions. And the reason for that is the final instructions will frequently involve discussions of how juries should interpret evidence that came out to them in the jury. Um, a good example is just sticking, we'll, we'll stick with our old friend, self-defense. It is largely considered to be improper to instruct the jury on self-defense in the preliminary instructions phase. And the reason for that is it has not been established through any evidence, either testimonial evidence or physical evidence, that self-defense may or may not be an issue. So when you get to the final instructions phase there will be a lot more discussion about, okay, we need an instruction on self-defense. We need an instruction on voluntary intoxication. We need an instruction that defines penetration. We need, you know, that's where you've got more like the plug and go variables. Um, Closing instruction discussions can get heated sometimes. The default is if there is a rule of if there's a jury a pre-printed jury instruction in the uh pattern jury instructions that has been signed off on by the supreme court that's where you start um if it is a pattern instruction the idea is it gets to come in if it is not a pattern instruction the next question you look at is does this accurately describe the law um and is this going to result in undue confusion to the jury that's where most of the arguing happens. Um, the state will typically try to argue that um, the defense proposed instructions uh, are covered by other instructions or are cumulative or confusing to the jury. The defense will typically argue that the state's instructions are going to be 
uh, attempting to focus too heavily on one aspect of the evidence, which other instructions tell you you can't do. Um, eventually, it works out. Eventually, after all the arguing, after all the shouting, um, you've got your final instructions. And, and final instructions can be pretty voluminous. Um, we had... Gosh, one of the one of the tri- one of the two trials that we did in June, there were fifty six final instructions that had to be read to the jury one at a time. Wow! And that was a case where we weren't actually fighting with each other. The the, it, the, the state and I uh, managed to stay remarkably professional with each other. There was not a lot of arguing about the instructions. We had agreed all the instructions in advance and made that a very smooth mm-hmm. process. But there were still fifty six of them. Uh, once the instructions ultimately get decided, though, um, the court will have them printed up so they can go back with the jury, and then the jurors are brought in, and that's where you have your uh, closing arguments. Mm-hmm. Closing arguments are effectively the attorney's summation of everything that they've heard. Closing arguments are designed to try and sway a jury to interpret the evidence one way versus another way. The state again always goes first. The state has the state will make its initial closing argument that tends to be a very mechanical, in my experience, argument about these are the elements that we needed to prove. Here's how we prove them. This is how you know that we prove them. This is why you should go back and vote guilty. When it gets turned over to our side as the defense, um, our closing argument typically focuses more on the unreliability of the evidence or why the evidence is insufficient at showing um, proof beyond a reasonable doubt or why there is reasonable doubt because of a failure of the evidence to prove something. Our job as the defense attorneys are to basically poke holes in everything that the state has said throughout the last course of the trial, whether it's days or, or weeks. Uh, I've never had a trial go for more than one week. I don't know that I want a trial that goes for more than one week. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but that the, sounds the, like the, some the painstaking work. effectively the same. Sure. Once we do our initial closing argument, the state has the ability to have what is referred to as a rebuttal close um, because they have the burden of proof. They get to have the last word. And they typically use that rebuttal closing argument to attack everything that that I've said, everything that we've said as the defense, um, you know, is now suddenly the most ridiculous out of left field thing ever. And you can blunt that a little bit. One of the things I've, one of the techniques that I've picked up over the years is as I'm winding down my own closing argument, I'll tell the jury, it's like, you know, I'm going to sit down here in a moment. After I sit down, you know, prosecutor, you know, Jones is going to stand up and they're going to tell you that everything that I said is absolutely ridiculous. You know, they get to have the last word because they need the extra help. If you feel doubt right now, it's because there's doubt. Her standing up or him standing up and attacking what I am telling you does not change the fact that if you believe there is doubt while I am talking to you right now, that doubt is reasonable and that doubt means not guilty. And I sit down Ooh, and, and the that. prosecutor typically stands and is like, well... He's right. I am going to say that everything he said was ridiculous. It's like you're taking the wind right out of their sails with that. Sure, sure. No, and, that's a great uh, tactic. And that does does it does it always does it always work? No, you know, of course. Sure. You know, we we do not have a perfect win record um, on juries. You know, that no matter how hard we try, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't go our way. But it, it is nice to watch them kind of have, you know, be put on the spot like that. Sure, sure. Well, Jack, I mean, you 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 go through closing arguments. We're coming in, you know, here at the end of the episode. Take us home as the jury goes into deliberations. They deliberate on on the verdict, and the verdict comes out and gets read. Talk us through that final final process of a trial, and uh, as we close out the episode today. Sure. Um, once the arguments are done, um, the court will give them the final instructions, and they'll be sent back to do their deliberations. Um, there is no time limit on how long deliberations go. Deliberations, at least in Indiana, go until they're done. Um, unlike what you'll see sometimes in other states or in high-profile cases, to the best of my knowledge, and, and I will certainly say that I have never been in a trial where this happened, but to the best of my knowledge in Indiana, 
once a jury starts deliberating, they are there until they reach a verdict. I have had deliberations last for 15 minutes. I think the longest set of deliberations I've ever had lasted for about 13 hours, I think, is the longest deliberation that I had. You know, I've had deliberations go into like three in the morning, depending on where the jury gets them. But they they make wow. their delivery. You know, they they have to make a decision. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't excuse jurors and ask them to come back overnight once the deliberations are going. It's like that's that's kind of at that point in time, you're you're in it for the long haul. So the jury makes its decision, and if the jury has follow up questions, they can ask them. Most of the time, the only thing the court can tell them is reread your instructions. Um, What the jury questions will sometimes do is it will sometimes give us an idea as to what direction the jury is leaning. Um, Other times it will get really weird ones. Like I had one where the jury asked if they could have a calendar in the jury room. And it, it seemed very much like it was one of those things like, okay, they're clearly trying to figure out where dates work out on those things. Um... Once the jury makes its determination, once the jury reaches a unanimous decision, they notify the bailiff. Uh, the bailiff makes sure that all the attorneys and, and the defendant are rounded up, uh, and then the jury is brought in. Um, unlike what you see on television, the jury does not read the verdict. Um, you see that in Perry Mason and in a lot of other television shows where the judge will say, you know, have you reached a verdict? You know, will the foreman read the verdict? You know, we, the jury, find, um, you know, the defendant, you know, guilty or not guilty. Uh, that does not happen. What will happen in Indiana is the judge will ask the, uh, the foreman to stand and identify himself or herself, uh, just verify they have a verdict, the verdict is unanimous, and an envelope that contains the jury verdicts will be given to the judge. Well, it'll be given to the bailiff, and that'll be given to the judge. And the judge at that point in time will review the verdicts, make sure that they're at, they're properly signed, uh, and then th- then at that point in time, it does look very familiar to how television is. You know, you do the you know the defendant is told to stand to hear the verdict, uh, and the judge reads the verdict, and then be be there. You know, we the jury find the defendant not guilty of count one or guilty of count one, and and so on and so forth. And then that resolves the jury's service. If the jury returns verdicts of not guilty across the board, everyone goes home. Like, that's literally it. There's nothing more that happens at that point in time. Like, if the defendant has been found not guilty, the trial's done. There's no more anything that happens. You're just done. Sure. If the defendant is found guilty of some or all the offenses, the next thing that happens is the judge needs to make the determination as to whether or not the defendant will be remanded into the custody of the sheriff pending sentencing. Certain felony offenses are what are referred to as non-suspendable. Those, of course, you'll be remanded into the custody of the sheriff. If you have a non-suspendable crime that you've been convicted of, you will be going to prison. So they're going to take you into custody so you don't run. If the offense is completely suspendable, more often than not, the judge will allow the defendant to remain uh, at liberty on whatever their previously posted bond was pending the sentencing hearing. The judge will order the preparation was referred to as a pre-sentence investigation report, which is a report that's prepared by the probation department that's supposed to help determine things like the risk of recidivism, uh, what types of programming might be needed to help with the rehabilitation, uh, demographic, biographic information like schooling, family, criminal history, things of that nature, uh, and the court will set a sentencing hearing. Under the laws of the state of Indiana, if you are convicted of a criminal offense, so this actually technically applies even if you plead guilty to a criminal offense by way of a plea agreement, you have a right to be sentenced within 30 days. Depending on the circumstances of the specific conviction, frequently we will waive that 30-day, especially if you're out of custody. Um, mm-hmm. The system is very backed up. Um, you know, If you can avoid being a sore thumb sometimes that degree of cooperation will at least subconsciously get the court to be more favorable sure, towards you sure um but that's what happens eventually the yeah. the pre-sentence investigation report is done uh we come back for the sentencing hearing and then at the sentencing hearing the court determines what the appropriate sentence is and then it goes to the issue of um you know you have a right to appeal at that point in time if you decide you don't want to appeal you move about your merry way and 
that's the end of the trial at that point. All right. Well, I mean, I appreciate you. I mean, we've, it's been a big summation in terms of, you know, the pretrial issues moving through the trial. And then of course, uh, concluding that trial and all the efforts that go throughout that Jack, I know you and your team are no stranger to that courtroom, you know, work serving as defense attorneys, working through that, you know, uh, really trying to badger and poke holes through the prosecution's case on a regular basis. Jack, for anybody out there that's, you know, enjoyed today's discussion clearly recognizes, you know, your, uh, your level of, of, intelligence and, and your ability in a courtroom and they're in need or of any sort of representation down the road, maybe them for themselves, friend, a family member, what would be the best way they could reach out to Razumich and associates and, and just, uh, you know, open up a dialogue and see how you guys might be able to assist, assist them with whatever, uh, you know, they're up against. As always, the best way of contacting our office is by telephone. Uh, the main switchboard number to our office is area code 317 five three 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 uh we do have operators standing by 24 hours a day seven days a week um senior staff is only here during regular business hours i i feel like i do need to qualify that we have had a couple people call uh, after hearing this call to action demanding to know why they weren't talking to an attorney at three in the morning we we do sleep we're not vampires <laughs> um senior staff is here during business hours but someone's always going to answer your telephone um Trials are, are incredibly high stakes things. Um, I, I always tell people if you have, you should always treat any criminal case with the utmost seriousness. They, they have so many far reaching consequences. If it is a case that you think might need to proceed to trial, definitely take the time to research your attorneys, research your representation, make sure that they know what they're doing when it comes to trials, make sure they've done trials um, good attorneys have no problem answering these questions, and and we are happy to talk about our trial experience with uh, the people that we help. Uh, it is something that we are quite proud of our record and the success that we've been able to get for our clients over the years. Um, and do just give our office a call. That number again, 317-983-5333, and we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. Well, this has been great, Jack. I appreciate you carving some time out of your day to jump on and dive through the anatomy of a trial. Really great episode, and uh, looking forward to being back on the next one with you. Absolutely. All right, folks. And hey, look, we want to take one final moment, as we always do, and thank you guys for stopping by and spending some time on the podcast with us today. If you did enjoy today's discussion or surrounding the anatomy of a trial, you benefited from it in any way, shape, or form, make sure you hit that subscribe button then on whichever platform you check this out on. That way you never miss out on a future episode where Jack and I dive into another criminal law-related topic. Before Jack, I'm Ryan. We're going to go ahead and say so long now, but we appreciate you stopping by and being with us on Closing Arguments. 